We're an educational nonprofit, non-governmental organization. Today's focus ha has to be on a country that is known to everyone in the world. I believe every school child, uh, wherever she or he may be in the globe, uh, can recall being in kindergarten or elementary school using clay to fashion a sphinx or try to build a pyramid or at least be uh, mindful of the importance of the River Nile. Um, Egypt, though, is that uh, plus uh, much more. It's a place where I began my career as an Arabist 57 years ago uh, this year. I live with an Egyptian family in a, in a village outside of Cairo. I was their American son, and I had an Egyptian mother, father, brother, and sister uh, for the better part of four months. And I've been smitten ever, ever since. It's like being in a university from which there's no possible graduation, only on the best of days, a murky incomplete. Now, with regard to Egypt, it's more than the Sphinx and the pyramids and the river Nile. Uh, people must also be mindful of the vital, globally vital role of the Suez Canal. And they need also to be mindful that between one in three and one in four of all Arabs in the world is an Egyptian. Uh, mindful as well that in Egypt is the American University of Cairo the United States oldest and um, largest university outside the United States anywhere in the world. Egypt remains as it has been substantially since 1979 and the Egyptian-Israeli peace accords, the, the oldest of the four or uh, five uh, peace accords uh, uh, present between Israel and Egypt uh, and receives substantial amounts of economic as well as military aid. Trade between Egypt and the United States in the past uh, year for which we have most recent figures was uh, $8.9 billion. And much of it, uh, surprise, uh, comes from a, uh, an American uh, state on the Gulf of Mexico, Louisiana. Uh, Egypt has a substantial or certainly an important minority of Coptic Christians. Uh, it has uh, major concerns to its east in terms of countering terrorism in the Sinai Peninsula. And it's also uh, involved uh, intricately and extensively westward uh, with Libya, one of the few governments involved with both the internationally recognized government of Libya and the representative of the insurgent uh, rebels. Uh, to help us uh, understand uh, Egypt better. Uh, we have two distinguished individuals who work the issues every day of the week and year. And our chairman uh, for the session will be former Congressman Ed Royce of California. Uh, Congressman Royce uh, served for 26 years in the House of Representatives and uh, for uh, almost little more than half a decade as chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. You cannot get more close to the eye of the compass and the needle with regard to America's engagement and involvement with Egypt than that. In retirement, uh, Congressman uh, Royce has been a representative uh, uh, for Egypt uh, with Brownstein, a uh, government relations uh, corporation in the United States. Uh, without further ado, I welcome uh, Congressman Ed Royce, who will introduce the ambassador, who will pro provide his pre prepared remarks, 
and we'll learn a great deal and have come away with increased information and insight and better knowledge and understanding about the important country of Egypt and the Egyptian-U.S. relationship. Congressman Royce. Well, thank you, Doc, Dr. Anthony. I appreciate that introduction. I, I will share with you all that um, our moderator this morning was to be Mr. Kaplan. He has, fortunately, uh, fallen ill. He is, in fact, in a hospital. And because of that circumstance, I've been asked to stand in here and uh, do the introduction and ask a few questions. And I'm, I'm happy to do that uh, at this time. But let me begin by introducing uh, the newly appointed ambassador. Uh, Dr. Motaz Zoran is um, ambassador of Egypt to the United States. He was formerly assistant foreign minister and chief of cabinet in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He has extensive uh, diplomatic experience all over the globe, including formally being the charge here uh, in the United States. He was stationed here from 2007 to 2011, so we welcome him back. Uh, and uh, at this time, allow me to uh, ask him a few questions. Uh, the first on my mind, and I think on the mind of many of us, is the assault we saw on our nation's capital. I, I know that the new parliament is coming in uh, in January in Egypt. We just had new members of the United States Congress uh, take their seats. And shortly after, uh, on the 6th of Janu January, we saw this insurrection. We saw this uh, assault on the Capitol, occupation of the US Capitol. I was gonna ask you, Ambassador, how is that being processed in the region? How are people reacting to this uh, in Egypt and, and uh, across your region? Uh, well, well, well uh, Chairman, thank you uh, very much. And thank you, uh, uh, Dr. Anthony, for your uh, introduction and, and, and Chairman Royce for, uh, for, uh, for introducing me. Um, I had initial remarks, but I'm, I'm happy to answer this question. Uh, at the very beginning, before I uh, before I uh, continue with my remarks, I it, it wasn't. I mean, the, the developments and these sad developments that happened on Capitol Hill on January the sixth were indeed shocking, and they were extremely extremely uh, sad in uh, what has transpired and 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 what continues to be in terms of ramifications. So I think everyone around the globe and including in Egypt and, 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 and across uh, different regions were uh, disheartened to see uh, these developments, uh, uh, sad developments happen. But I, uh, as I look uh, at these developments, I couldn't help but see some uh, correlations uh, with what was uh, happening uh, back home. And number one that comes to mind is the desire of radical groups to take advantage of large-scale uh, protests, to steer them towards violence, to generate, generate chaos and lawlessness, to achieve political ends. And what comes to mind here in terms of uh, correlation is uh, the, Muslim, the Muslim Brotherhood. The second is the inability of law enforcement agencies to react appropriately in the midst of large-scale uh, protests that overwhelm their ability to react with composure. And the third thing that comes to mind is a widespread 
national collective feeling of uh, unity that immediately follows the scenes of chaos and societal disorder and a nationwide one voice that speaks against all those that seek to foment and provoke uh, disorderly conduct and violence and intimidation. And, and from these sad developments in the US and similar sad developments that happen elsewhere, you know, instant, uh, what can I say, lessons learned uh, present themselves. No, uh, number one, that uh, rights and freedoms in general are not absolute and are bound by the limits to guarantee other rights as well as public order and safety. So this is a number one uh, uh, take. Number two is security is paramount uh, to preserve the rights of peaceful demonstrators and protesters, but also to safeguard sovereign institutions and national security uh, uh, against radicals who exploit and manage to infiltrate in their ranks, uh, whether rioters, looters, or hooligans. And number three, again, is, is, is uh, uh, another national alignment in reprehension is only natural. And it is a natural function of hostile attacks against symbols of identity, symbols of unity, and landmarks of, of democracy, political system, and governance. So, you know, what the, we saw uh, in the United States here is, you know, what a glimpse of, of a chaotic and, and disorderly behavior on one particular day. It immediately imposed a curfew on the same day and mobilized its national guards. Uh, and issued an emergency declaration. So Egypt, again here with the correlation that I'm thinking of, witnessed anarchy for several years with nonstop large-scale protests and across the country, fomented by armed violence and extremism that sought to exhaust state institution and law enforcement agencies. So I would like to offer condolences to the United States on the loss of uh, life uh, following the sad incidents on Capitol Hill. And I'm, I'm confident in the ability of the American institutions and the, um, the, 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 the democracy that exists in the US to be able to quickly overcome uh, uh, these events and, and uh, quickly return to normalcy. So, so this is what I think. Thank you. Would you like uh, to make some opening remarks? And then I will continue with some questions. From absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you again, Chairman. And, uh, and let me just say that uh, the topic today is Egypt's evolving landscape. And I, and I think I'll be more uh, than happy to, uh, to focus on Egypt and the transformation that, uh, that uh, has uh, been ongoing uh, in Egypt. So. Uh, let me just say that I assumed my responsibilities in these challenging times, an unprecedented historical presidential election here in, in, in the United States, uh, a raging global uh, pandemic, unparalleled uh, scenes gripping the political scene in Washington, and a global economic slowdown as a result of COVID, all in the midst of a volatile international order. I believe what 
we are witnessing uh, nowadays is a hallmark of the past decade. Our ability to predict and foresee political and societal developments has substantially diminished. The parameters, dynamics uh, that were previously taken for granted as solid foundations governing both local and global events are no longer, uh, no longer reliable. But having in Egypt uh, undergone two uh, consecutive and complementary revolutions, you know, Egypt today is, is no longer transitioning from, from the brink, but rather in a process of fundamental and, and promising transformation. And many of you would acknowledge that the nature of transformation is uh, such that progress is steadily achieved, but also not short of imperfections. So allow me to use the opportunity today to take stock of, of the promising advances Egypt has made over the past few years and shed light on what I think are exciting developments uh, uh, back home that are seemingly overlooked here in Washington, beginning with the astounding strides Egypt's uh, energy uh, sector has made. So in that sector, Egypt is on its way to becoming the region's de facto energy hub after being a, nest, a, a net gas importer for years. Uh, this has not only been driven by discoveries of massive natural gas uh, reserves in the Eastern Mediterranean, but also by a solid political commitment to leverage gas in the region as an anchor for uh, stability and a source of cooperation in the region. So towards this end, the East Med Gas Forum with the membership of Arab and European states along with Israel has been created uh, by an initiative from Egypt and with its headquarters uh, in Cairo. So Egypt is also been cognizant of the existential threat of climate change. And since 2015, we have committed to implementing an integrated sustainable energy strategy targeting 20% of Egypt's power generation to be based on renewables by 2022 and double that uh, percentage by 2035. Numerous solar and wind powered clean energy projects have been implemented to that effect, topped by the construction of one of the largest solar power plants in the world in Bambilan Aswan. The solar power plant is an astounding achievement in itself, placing Egypt in the driver's seat when it comes to renewable energy in the region. Now, infrastructure projects. It is worth noting that these projects are only part of a much larger development effort to stimulate economic growth and contribute to, to job creation, which includes establishing industrial zones and expanding the construction of new smart cities, topped by Egypt's new administrative capital, the inauguration of the new Suez Canal back in 2015, that seeks, in fact, to transform the area into a global logistical center, but also revamping Egypt's national road network and launching a project to cultivate an additional 4 million acres of agricultural land. In the field of fiscal and, and monetary policies, let me say that we've embarked on a reform program since uh, 2017 that helped the economy today to stay resilient 
in the face of COVID-19. And while the pandemic has temporarily stifled our soaring economic trajectory, Egypt's performance is still generally above average compared to others, with a fascinating growth rate of 3.6%. Now, foreign direct investment FDIs have reached an 8.5 billion in 2019, making Egypt the largest recipient of FDI in Africa. Just a few months ago, JP Morgan announced that Egypt was the only in the Middle East and Africa to retain the confidence of the world's three big credit rating agencies. In the health sector, and in the, uh, uh, it is, it is uh, noteworthy to, to mention that Egypt has in fact enacted legislation for gradual universal healthcare and health insurance in tandem with efforts to improve the healthcare system and services. In recent years, maternal and infant mortality rates have decreased significantly, while the average life expectancy has increased. Now, in the field of human rights, and it's important to, uh, to mention a number of facts here, Egypt has striven to ensure that its success stories in the economic and social uh, spheres are balanced with the protection and advancement of human rights. The government has made sure to keep vulnerable segments of society firmly in sight and has spared no effort to protect and advance social rights. We have devised a comprehensive cash transfer programs in Egypt called Takaful, which is solidarity, and Karama, which is dignity, targeting poor households with children, the elderly, and people with disabilities. Coverage continues to expand and has already reached more than 3.6 million households around 14 million citizens. The UNDP, in fact, recently hailed this social safety net as the largest in the Middle East and North Africa. So efforts are underway to provide in tandem adequate housing and eradicate slums with the country embarking on an ambitious program that aims at providing 1 million units across the country for those in the lower income bracket, over 60% of which have so far been accomplished. It is worth uh, stressing, stressing that Egypt approaches the issue of human rights from a comprehensive perspective. It recognizes the current state of affair, like in all other countries, is far from ideal, and is cognizant that the Egyptian people will hold their government accountable if real and tangible progress is not made. And now, that, now this is all rooted in the constitution itself of 2014. And I must say the most, the most progressive in Egypt's constitutional history in terms of rights and freedoms and liberties. And is reflected also in the attempts to empower state institutions to promote human rights. Egypt has created a supreme standing committee on human rights, in addition to the already existing National Council on Human Rights, tasked with, the, with formulating and overseeing the implementation of a comprehensive strategy to elevate human rights in Egypt in their to totality. 
And I must say here that only 30 nations around the globe have such a strategy. And this strategy should be out very soon. Now, clearly we're on a path towards advancing civil and political rights by implementing reform in legislation. Of particular importance here is the passage of the NGO law in 2019, following intense societal deliberations ensuring that almost 50,000 NGOs currently operating in the country can live up to their full potential freely and effectively. And even before that, in 2017, when we have enacted a new protest law with progressive provisions. Now, this trajectory is embarked uh, on in an atmosphere that sees, unfortunately, radical and extremist groups seeking to foment chaos, anarchy, and disorder. Um, well, this is basically an, uh, where I had made the correlation in the very beginning uh, with what happened uh, here in the US. But let me just go to the religious tolerance and freedom uh, portion. It is worth reflecting here that Egypt is not to uh, shy to continue to raise this issue in its internal debates as progress in the religious tolerance and freedom domain has achieved a tremendous progress. We in Egypt were on the verge of collapsing into a dark theocratic rule by the Muslim Brotherhood, which had incited its brainwashed followers to attack. Christian homes, shops, schools, churches throughout the country. Now, the drastic changes that have occurred since seem almost inconceivable, with President Ibn Sisi inaugurating the Cathedral of Nativity in 2019 to become the largest cathedral in the Middle East built by state funds. I think it is also pertinent here to also mention that the state's financing of, of the restoration of the Iliahu Hanavi synagogue in Alexandria, whereby 180 Jews of Egyptian origin flew to Egypt to celebrate the renovated grand opening back in February, 2020. In the, in the field of women empowerment, uh, it has topped the state's agenda. And I'm pleased to say that Egypt has now managed to break the glass ceiling for women's representation in elected and decision-making bodies. Parliamentary elections in 2015 saw 90 women representatives being elected to parliament, 15% uh, of seats. But in the elections in 2020, it saw women being elected to 148 seats. That is a composition of 26% of parliament, which is the highest rate in Egypt's history. Meanwhile, in, in June 20, or since June 2018, women representation in top level of government increased from 15% to 25%. Eight female ministers, while a female was appointed for the first time as the national security advisor to the president a deputy governor of the central bank, as well as a governor. 
and deputy governors, mayors, and deans. 66 female judges were also appointed. Women are regularly uh, uh, or have uh, also been regularly making up the, the highest percentage of voter turnout in Egypt's election. In the field of counterterrorism, we have prioritized ideological confrontation in order to immunize the society against dangers of radicalization. And the president launched back in, in, in 2014 an initiative to renew and redress religious uh, discourse. Alongside these efforts, Egypt's security forces have launched several operations to eradicate terrorism emanating from pockets in northern Sinai. These efforts resulting in achieving many successes, especially in terms of degrading the activity of local terrorist groups operating there. And we have also doubled down on efforts to supervise the implementation of projects, development projects in Sinai to improve socio economic conditions of its inhabitants. Now, indeed, developing socially and economically while building a dem democratic state that embodies the values of modernity is not an easy uh, feat. And achieving this while facing a global pandemic, regional turmoil, a scourge of terrorism, geopolitical challenges is also extremely demanding. And yet, Egypt is doing it and exerting efforts to foster liberal principles across Egyptian society while pursuing an ambitious development uh, strategy. Now, I'd like to conclude uh, by expressing hope that uh, my intervention uh, would uh, have helped in shedding some light on uh, some of the exciting domestic developments in Egypt, providing what I think is a more reasonable account of progress in Egypt. Societal transformations are by nature incremental and complex, but with the momentum and passion I detect among the Egyptian people and their support with the ambitious drive of their president, I'm confident we are on the right track. Since the topic of this event focuses on Egypt's evolving landscape, I opted to confine my introductory remarks the huge transformation happening in Egypt. But as I mentioned, the whole region is in turmoil and I'd be happy to engage in a, a conversation on, on Egypt's role throughout the region and also the enduring Egypt-US strategic relationship. And, uh, and I would be remiss not to mention that the president of Egypt has been amongst the very first leaders to congratulate uh, President-elect uh, Biden on uh, winning the elections uh, back uh, in November. And we look forward to continuing uh, engaging with the future administration uh, in terms of working together to solidify this relationship that has always been beneficial to both sides, has been a longstanding and enduring, and has catered at, uh, 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 at different and, and at all times throughout the history of this relationship to the interests of both countries and their common objectives. So thank you very much. Thank you, Ambassador. Let me, let me ask you about uh, the Abraham Accords, uh, the relationship, the normalization of relations between UAE and Bahrain uh, and Israel. I think this is the first time since uh, Egypt in 1979 normalized its uh, relationship 
with Israel, uh, followed by Jordan uh, in 94, that this has occurred. Uh, what do you see in the region in terms of momentum towards peace as a result of this? And what do you perceive Egypt's role will be in helping uh, to try to negotiate peace moving forward? Well, absolutely. This is a, a great question. Let me say that we have uh, welcomed, and uh, we've been amongst the very first, if not the first, to welcome each of these peace openings that have happened between Israel, the, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco. Uh, and this uh, peace uh, spirit is one that we have entrenched in the region over 42 years ago. So we've been the trailblazers, we've been the uh, seed planters, we've been the pathfinders from the very beginning. And by weathering the backlash against Egypt at the time for at least a decade, we've been able through uh, our conviction of the need to spread the culture of peace we've been able to transform mindsets. And as mindsets have transformed in the region, we've seen Jordan 16 years later coming on board. And 26 years later, we've seen the other Arab countries coming on board. Now, uh, how do we envisage our role here? I think it is important for Egypt, and I think Egypt is also cognizant of that, is to build on that spirit again, because the core issue in the Middle East or the core conflict in the Middle East remains to be the Palestinian-Israeli. And uh, we've made a number of efforts in the past to forge a peace treaty that uh, un uh, unfortunately uh, was not, uh, we were not able to do with our partnership with the US and with our uh, also contacts and, and coordination with Israel and the Palestinians, of course. Uh, what we see today is an opportunity, is an opportunity to uh, build on that spirit. And in fact, Egypt has spared no effort by uh, coming together with what we call the Munich Group. And the Munich Group comprises Germany, France, Jordan, and Egypt. And they've in fact had their meeting in Cairo just a few uh, days back in trying to lay out what should be the parameters of, the, uh, of peace in the region, but also the requirements for the resumption of, of peace negotiations and peace talks. Uh, essentially, uh, or one important uh, dimension here is to have the Palestinians also able to present their vision of what a, a two-state solution looks like, looks like. And I think through engagement with our European partners, but also with engagement with the uh, future administration in the US, we should be able and we have to be able to uh, continue on uh, reinvigorating the efforts on the peace, on the peace track, but also and, and I'll just say this again, we've exerted in the past and we will continue to exert efforts on two other fronts. One is on Palestinian reconciliation, uh, which is ongoing. 
and has been ongoing for uh, a number of years, but I think we need to have more impetus into that reconciliation. And we know that the Palestinians have elections in summer. And we also know that in a few months, the Israel will have uh, elections as well. So we have at least through summer uh, to try to put or to, uh, uh, to have uh, to do our uh, essential homework and groundwork for the aftermath of these elections in both countries. This is one. The second point is we will continue to play an important and, and crucial role to de-escalate whenever escalation happens in Gaza. And that is a role that we've been able to do by mediating, by using our channels of communication with the Palestinians and with the Israelis in a, in a very effective way. Let me ask you also, as we talk about stabilizing the region, uh, one of the challenges uh, had been uh, Bashir's government, some of the actions that Sudan had taken over the years. And now in Khartoum, there is a new government, there is a new, uh, a new direction. Uh, let me ask you about Egypt's uh, cooperation, uh, maybe with a new administration, with the Biden administration in terms of Khartoum. But, uh, but also uh, Egypt's perception uh, as uh, some of the more radical figures uh, like the former head of state in Sudan uh, being, being um, uh, replaced by uh, democratic forces. Uh, there is also the issue of the cooperation Egypt has had with the United States and the Red Sea and so forth, dealing with Iran and dealing with uh, uh, radicalization and especially with militias and, and with the, uh, uh, some of the fallout from the uh, IRGC's actions. So could I ask you uh, about uh, how you perceive uh, cooperation with the new administration on Iran policy, also on Sudan policy? Well, absolutely. When it comes to uh, Iran, uh, we've seen the uh, uh, foreign policy platform of the new administration and we see Iran uh, high on the list. Uh, we recognize that the US has uh, withdrawn from JCPOA and JCPOA is uh, effectively not functioning. And Iran is, is on uh, a course in terms of upgrading its nuclear uh, capacity. Uh, when we look at Iran, uh, we see that the nuclear file is not just the problem with their behavior uh, throughout the region. The nuclear file is one, but also their interventions and their uh, negative uh, and, 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 and in fact destructive involvement uh, playing with Arab assets throughout the region needs to come into the equation and needs to be dealt with seriously in tandem with the nuclear and missile fight. So I think there is opportunity here to work with the next administration because if the Middle East figures last on the priority list, as we see on the, on the foreign policy platform, I personally see, uh, don't see how one can reconcile between Iran high on the list and the Middle East lower uh, down uh, in, uh, on that list because the, the, the interjection here is throughout the conflicts and the interjection of Iran has only exacerbated the conflicts throughout the region. 
If you look at Lebanon, if you look at Syria, if you look at Iraq, if you look at Lebanon and Yemen, you will find an Iranian involvement throughout all these uh, conflicts that has only exacerbated the situation. Uh, so when, when it comes to the nuclear file, it, I, I personally think, and I think this is a conviction back home, that it should not be dealt with away from the other regional uh, interjections uh, of Iran. So this will be something that I think an area whereby uh, Egypt and the new administration could work on. There's certainly in the past we've had with uh, Republican as well as Democratic administrations here, a lot of discussions on how to deal with Iran. And I think it's only natural that part of our strategic dialogue, this relationship between both Egypt and the US is strategic in its nature. And uh, when it is strategic, it is military to military, it is intelligence sharing, it is uh, uh, continuing, continue, continuous coordination in terms of the security field, but also in terms of the general outlook throughout the region and how to deal with the different conflicts and hotspots uh, in the region. So there is, there is room for that and we'll be definitely looking forward to our discussions with the new administration. When it comes to Sudan, let me just say that Sudan, and this is the headline, Sudan needs to succeed. And I think uh, uh, we in Egypt, we have embraced the new Sudan with, in full heart. Uh, both Sudan and Egypt, they uh, not only share the River Nile, which is the, which is the, uh, the source of, of livelihood in both countries, but also we have uh, a joint uh, and common heritage in terms of history, in terms of our geography, in terms of the inter interactions of people to people. Uh, so there's a lot at stake here between both Egypt and Sudan, and we need to, to continue to see to it that, uh, that Sudan is enabled in a fashion uh, that uh, uh, puts Sudan on a, on a, on a, on a solid uh, uh, foundation to, to, to be able to take on all the challenges that Sudan is facing. And when it comes to the River Nile, there's the GERD issue again, that also puts both Egypt and, uh, and Sudan and Ethiopia on, uh, uh, on, 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 that has, that needs to have the three countries aligned in terms of recognizing two important things. One is the developmental needs of Ethiopia in terms of, uh, of its electricity uh, generation uh, and catering, of course, to the economy and to the to poorer segments of the society in Ethiopia, but also uh, the, a recognition uh, that seems to be lost in, in translation here of the existential threat that both Sudan and Egypt are faced if an agreement is not uh, reached and unilateral action continues by uh, to be taken, uh, undertaken by Ethiopia in disregard of the uh, of resources uh, of uh, uh, of threat that both Egypt uh, and Sudan uh, face. So unfortunately, the negotiations have not gone anywhere. They've in fact stalled in many occasions. The previous uh, the, the current uh, administration has exerted effort, and the effort has been commendable because. It basically mediated in a fair and balanced way between the three uh, uh, riparian states, and they've uh, they've included also the World Bank, and the World Bank was present in these negotiations, and we've been able to 
through uh, the efforts exerted by the US to uh, reach a balanced and fair document that was put on the table here in Washington, but the Ethiopians have snubbed the whole process and, and it stalled, but it then resumed in the, uh, under the chairmanship of the, of the African Union. But again, it stalled again. Basically, what is uh, called for are three important things. One is no unilateral action and, until uh, an agreement is reached. Two, until then, no significant harm on any of the riparian states. And three, the need to reach an agreement, a legally binding agreement uh, on the issue as it, uh, as it has an impact on livelihoods uh, in the region, but also that incorporates uh, a mechanism for a dispute resolution. Uh, uh, so basically this is it, and we're hopeful to work again with the new administration to highlight these issues and, and to have the administration cognizant of what had transpired in the past and, and to, uh, to request the new administration to continue to play a, a constructive role in resolving uh, the crisis. Ambassador, if I could ask you also, uh, neighboring uh, Libya, uh, when, uh, when you look at ways in which the United States uh, and Egypt might cooperate to reduce the tensions in Libya, your thoughts uh, going forward? Well, uh, uh, Libya is probably the number one national security threat uh, today uh, to Egypt. Uh, and throughout history, our uh, threats uh, have never emanated from our Western borders. But because of the chaos that is currently in Libya, we've uh, given prime attention in terms of the need to reach a political settlement. We recognize that there's no military solution to the internal struggle in Libya. It is the number one security threat. We've been supportive of the efforts. We've been actually at the forefront of these efforts when we managed just lately to bring both sides, the LNA and the GNA in Egypt uh, at uh, military levels and political levels and also legal, uh, 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 legal dimension as well for a new constitution for Libya in Egypt. So we've played an instrumental role here. And when we have declared, the president has declared the red line of Sirt Jafra, it was actually a call for peace because the red line had essentially meant this, no one from the West should move into the East and no one from the East should move into the West. Uh, but we, are, we continue to be uh, concerned about external involvement in Libya. And we've been adamant in our calls throughout for all foreign presence in Libya uh, to move out of Libya because their presence in Libya has only exacerbated and, spe and specifically when we find in Libya militias, radical militias that are essentially terrorist groups that operate and have found support and, and, uh, and, uh, and continued assistance from regional parties. And this is one of the issues 
that uh, issues that I think is important for us to clarify to for the new to the new administration. In the past, when the United States has decided to pivot towards Asia or to pivot to Asia out of a fatigue uh, from the, the different conflicts in the Middle East, it has only created vacuums in the Middle East. And these vacuums have been filled, unfortunately, by regional and extra regional uh, uh, parties. Uh, and, and here we've been uh, uh, seeing a, a, a pattern of behavior on the part of Turkey, uh, for example. And when it comes to Libya in specific, we've seen support to all these radical groups in Libya. We've seen uh, uh, their uh, 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 agents on the ground in Libya. We've seen also uh, the support they have been providing to these militias, but not only that, in terms of exacerbating the conference at the conflict, they've been transferring FTFs, foreign terrorist fighters, from the Syrian theater into the Libyan theater. And this is something that needs to stop. And all those who have uh, found uh, some ground in, in Libya need to move out of Libya or the Libyans themselves with the support of the international community uh, to be able to forge uh, the political settlement that we need to be uh, assisting them to do. Ambassador, uh, you and Dr. Anthony have both referenced uh, the gas discoveries in the Eastern Mediterranean, the rapid uh, growth and investment there. There's a lot of capital coming into Egypt now, uh, a lot of US capital. What are some of the economic reforms that, that the new parliament will be looking at, that the government is looking at in terms of unleashing human capital, in terms of uh, uh, you know, creating uh, an incentive uh, for people to have the economic wherewithal uh, and how much of the um, how much of the reserves or the um, uh, wealth that comes from the economic boon here is going to be um, uh, is is going to go towards further expansion uh, of infrastructure in education. We've seen the the focus on digital learning. We've seen the focus now on the hard sciences in Egypt. Uh, you see the, the graduates coming out now with a real focus, uh, a lot of modernity in terms of what's happened in the education system. But ex explain some of the reforms, uh, if you will, and, and reforms that you feel the new parliament needs to undertake. Well, well, uh, well absolutely. Well, thank you for that. Uh, uh, the, the, the reforms that we have, uh, and I've alluded to that in my introductory uh, remarks, the reforms that we've uh, been implementing for three years now have brought to us resilience that I don't think we as Egyptians had expected. Uh, and specifically during the COVID, uh, uh, the last year of COVID, with a growth rate of 3.6%, that is unmatched uh, throughout the world. It is uh, the only growth rate that we see in the Middle East, a positive growth rate. All the rest are, e are either uh, negative or zero. And we've surpassed other economies as well, uh, big economies as well throughout the world, whether India, whether, whether others as well, uh, in terms of that percentage. So that percent percentage did not come out of a vacuum, but came out of uh, the, uh, uh, the ability of the country to stick to a reform process that 
has touched on fiscal and monetary and structural uh, dimensions. And when you look at the numbers in terms of the economy, you will find an un unemployment rate that has went down to a one digit, which is a, a 9.6, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And, and that one digit in terms of unemployment comes down from previous figures that were hovering around the 20% and the 22% and all that. And when you look at uh, inflation rate, the inflation rate just a few years back was over 30%, was 30, 33%. Today, you will find an inflation rate last, uh, last year's figures were around a 4% and the latest we see today is around is just above 5%. So that is also indicative of how the uh, economy has been resilient thanks to these reforms. Uh, now, the opportunities. The opportunities here are humongous, are, are monumental. Uh, in the, in the, in, in the, in the um, what we call the Suez Canal uh, economic deve developmental corridor, with all the opportunities with new exclusive zones to be devoted to industries, uh, with the uh, Suez Canal corridor itself uh, 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 on, the, on a trajectory to becoming the uh, logistical uh, center uh, of the region, with the gas uh, discoveries and the forum that we've been able to create uh, with our regional uh, partners transforming Egypt into a, into a hub, a re, an energy hub, and not just a gas hub, with discoveries in the, oil, uh, in the oil sector as well. All this has been extremely good news for businesses and companies here in the US. And we've been seeing a number of companies interested, and I just had a conversation with them in, uh, uh, in the context of the American Chamber, and the amount of interest in coming into the, 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 uh, the Egyptian market is huge. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm extremely happy. This is also one of the success stories that we have. And we have traditional companies, but also we have new companies that are exploiting, uh, sorry, that are uh, exploring uh, the new uh, uh, opportunities that exist in Egypt. Infrastructure is huge. Uh, 14 new cities are being built in tandem in parallel. And this in, in itself is unimaginable. A country uh, of the size of Egypt with the economy of Egypt and still being able to uh, embark on these mega projects is, is, is simply astounding. So these are the opportunities. In the educational sector, as you've mentioned, the educational sector is just like uh, what's happening today is just like what happened in terms of religious freedom. It, 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 when, when we spoke about religious freedoms and we see the president's speeches on, uh, uh, on, on religions in general, you will find in it, and this is what the headline is, a religious th a revolutionary thinking. And what we see in the educational sector is exactly the same thing. Uh, a, 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 revolution, a revolutionary uh, uh, or revolutionary policies that are being implemented in terms of bringing in new curricula, uh, uh, revising old curricula, opening up the educational system to the to the world at large, with using technology and and ICT and ICTs. All this has been 
extremely progressive in thinking and it is new to Egyptian minds who have always been in the past uh, subject to whatever was delivered to them. So it was in fact in the past, this is the, uh, the good that you should be reading and this is the output that we should be expecting. Today, it's not, it's not that at all. It is critical thinking, it is thinking out of the box and, 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 and actually the president has initiated that kind of thinking and the current uh, minister of education is doing an extremely impressive job in terms of revolutionizing the educational system in Egypt. So these are other success stories and with, through our collaboration with, uh, uh, with uh, US educational uh, institutions and I think they're ongoing already we will be able to, to transform the whole society uh, uh, in its totality. I see that uh, the largest archeological museum in the world, uh, the, uh, the gem, the uh, uh, Egyptian um, museum, the Grand Egyptian Museum is going to be opening this year. What, what impact do you think that will have on tourism and economic growth in Egypt as well? Well, well, absolutely. As you know, when we spoke about the resilience of the Egyptian economy, we're uh, also uh, cognizant of the fact that we have also been hit like everyone else has been hit. And one uh, major sector of the economy that has been hit is in fact in the tourism, uh, the tourism uh, sector, but not only tourism, tourism and small and, and, and medium uh, enterprises, uh, our uh, export uh, uh, industries, our aviation uh, industry, uh, 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 all these sectors have been, uh, have been also hit uh, by virtue of COVID, by virtue of the slowdown uh, of the global economy as well. And the Suez Canal uh, revenues have also, uh, have also diminished. And also the, the remittances from our workers uh, abroad have also somehow been diminished. But in the tourism sector, let me just tell you that hopefully very soon. I mean, the, Egypt is open uh, despite COVID. And we see today the, uh, what uh, it's called, it's called the, 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 the World Championship of, of Handball is actually occurring in Egypt these days. And the president has just inaugurated the, 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 the first, uh, the first uh, 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 event yesterday. Uh, so Egypt is open. What we need to see is we need to see the vaccines out. So the, uh, uh, and, and they are out today, but we, see, we need to see them, uh, people taking the vaccine to be immune from the uh, pandemic. And we need to see a retraction in the amount uh, and the sphere of, of the pandemic in general for us to be reasonable in our uh, outlook when we envisage new, uh, uh, or, uh, a return of tourism into Egypt. The gem, which is the Grand Egyptian Museum, it was supposed to be inaugurated last year, but because of the pandemic, we've delayed it and we've postponed the inauguration. And very soon, I think there will be an announcement on when exactly by the end of this year. And it will be uh, an event, uh, a, it will be a, a global event. It will be, uh, 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 I know that there are, uh, invitations that will be sent out to, to the whole world. It will be something that we will take pride in and hopefully we'll be able to 
uh, use the opportunity when the pandemic is behind our backs to relaunch uh, through the GEM our, uh, our interest or generate interest uh, again into uh, uh, pouring into Egypt and having tours resume uh, the heights of the past and exceed. Well, thank you, Ambassador Zayron. I, I think uh, Dr. John Duke Anthony had some words uh, that he wanted to uh, wrap up with. And so I'll yield over to uh, Dr. Anthony at this time. All right. Yes. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, for your superb questions and insight. And you especially, Mr. Ambassador, being so forthright with <clears throat> information that's generally hard to come by. Egypt does not get uh, the requisite treatment in the mainstream American media that it uh, deserves and requires for better understanding. But I, I do have one question, Mr. Ambassador, from roughly 1955 to 1979, there was no question as to which of the 22 Arab countries was the foremost most prominent uh, in the realm of leadership. Um, since that time, not only Egypt, but uh, also Iraq and Syria, which uh, previously had competitive uh, pretension to being a leader of, in the Arab world, the 22 state Arab region, the Middle East, the Islamic world, has waned somewhat. And most particularly in the aftermath of the Camp David Accords having to do with Palestine. You mentioned Palestine being the principal central problem uh, and obstacle uh, to further strengthen and expanded relationship between the United States, not just with Egypt, but across the, the Arab region. Um, during that period since 1979, you even had the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982 in there those strategic and other military analysts who wondered whether uh, that invasion would have occurred had it not been for Egypt being on the sidelines occasioned by the Camp David Accords. And there's been other regional strife uh, since then, including the 2003 United States invasion and occupation of Iraq, which uh, Egypt was unable to forestall, nor was any other country uh, in the region. Uh, during this time, regarding the Palestinian issue, the Israelis have continued unabated uh, to seize and occupy Palestinian lands, uh, res uh, water resources, agricultural resources, bulldozing home homes, imposing collective punishment. Um, this has to be frustrating, if not politically humiliating, for some of the Egyptians who wish the reality were otherwise. Could you please address how this situation has come about in terms of its context, its background, and we welcome your perspective going forward. Okay, well, well thank you, Dr. Anthony. The, 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 your question is, is very pertinent, very broad, of course, nature. There's, uh, on, on, in terms of leadership, uh, uh, let, let me just say that it is, probably not the time to uh, seek leadership for the sake of leadership. Uh, leadership doesn't, uh, doesn't come about uh, by a decision. It is, it is by virtue of uh, your uh, statute. Of course, we have, you know, by virtue of, of our geostrategic location, by virtue of our history, we are the most populous, as you've mentioned in the very beginning. 
But all this comes again with your ability to, you know, overcome your own obstacles back home. And these obstacles have basically been uh, uh, have been thrown up to us uh, by virtue of the, the turbulences that we went through uh, just lately. Uh, we went through two consecutive revolutions, uh, complementary revolutions, uh, but, but all the, this kind of societal uh, uh, upheaval has, has made us look inwards more but also by forging our uh, uh, partnerships as well to serve our uh, internal uh, aspirations and the aspirations of the people. So as we gain ground, that leadership comes on its own. And when you, when you look uh, in the past, you, and even in the US here, let me just give this example. The US has always been a global power uh, in the past, the U.S. was always uh, referred to as the global superpower. Today, yeah. we'll talk about the U.S. as a global power. Some people say global player. And, and <clears throat> this kind of diminishing kind of stature is not because the U.S. is diminishing or anything. It's because the world is evolving and there are new, new players that are out there on the geostrategic, uh, uh, environment, in the geostrategic environment of the world. And and has become more competitive. So it is uh, a U.S. leadership that we all look uh, look to, but also in a in a in a, a general competitive atmosphere throughout the world that has brought uh, players up. So does that mean the U.S. is the U.S.'s stature has diminished, or does it mean that other players have augmented in their ability to play a, a global role? Uh, so this is one thing, the, and I think this applies to Egypt as well in its region. So Egypt is a regional uh, uh, power. It's a, an important regional player. It's a cornerstone of peace and security in the region and has always played a role that is commensurate with its own capabilities, with, with its own capacities, with it, its history, its geography, its population, and its ability to interject uh, with sense and with also moderation. Or Egypt has always been a force for good throughout the region, has always been a force of moderation throughout the region, and has never sought hegemony uh, in the region. Unlike others today, when you look at other players in the region, that is their own focus and that is their own aspiration. So we don't have that. And I think this is a good thing. Uh, uh, but also when you look at, the, uh, at in, within our Arab world, you'll find other Arab players that have also uh, been able to uh, augment their abilities and their capacities, which is welcome, uh, which is welcome as long as we are all uh, within the same spirit of goodness throughout the region. Uh, so this is one thing. On the Palestinian uh, uh, issue, yes, uh, you are right. We have, uh, uh, you know, we have uh, a peace treaty with Israel. We have special relations with Israel. We have coordination with Israel on virtually every uh, every uh, aspect of this relationship and throughout the region, but we have never shied away from calling a spade a spade. So when it comes to settlement, we've been denouncing settlements all along. And I think this has been also appreciative on the part of Israel because uh, Israel needs a reliable partner and that reliable partner 
needs to be able to tell Israel when it's right and needs to be able to tell Israel when it's wrong. And it is uh, advice that is furnished all along in terms of po po the political uh, atmosphere uh, that uh, has always uh, been uh, you know, problematic, uh, controversial uh, throughout the region. So yes, the Palestinian issue needs to be core. It is core. Uh, the, the conflict is the core conflict. And because of the continuation of that conflict, other conflicts have erupted. Uh, if we're able to tackle uh, the, uh, the core conflict, we will be seeing easing of other conflicts around. So I think this is the general, uh, uh, the general uh, feeling and sentiment throughout the region and not only in Egypt. And we will continue to play our pivotal role here in terms of peace and security and stability throughout the region. And I think it's important, it will only be uh, 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 reinforced by a solid partnership with our strategic partner uh, in the US. Thank you, Mr. Mabesta, it's a very instructive answer. And to, to bring this uh, uh, to a close, um, what you have underscored in the chairman and his uh, penetrating questions as well, have been the broad array of uh, commonality of needs, uh, both our peoples, both our governments, both our countries. Uh, similarly, uh, uh, a common set of uh, concerns. Uh, you've italicized uh, these uh, with regard to prioritization. And uh, likewise, you have uh, emphasized the mutuality of interest the mutuality of, of benefits and the reciprocity of rewards that have uh, been instilled and flow from our relationship. And at the end of the day, uh, what we can say from all of this is that we remain friends. We've been friends for a long time. We're strong, a set of friends now as we've ever been and going forward, the promise is that we will be even more friendly. But more than friendship, uh, we're allies. And more than allies, we're strategic partners. There are relatively few countries uh, in the world and amongst the emerging countries in particular that can say that they are all these three things with the United States and vice versa, that we're friends, that we're allies, that we're strategic partners. Mr. Ambassador, we thank you. Mr. Chairman, uh, former chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Congressman Ed Royce, we thank you, sir. And we thank uh, your representation of Brownstein Corporation for representing the interest of Egypt in the United States. Thank you everyone for viewing, for listening. We look forward uh, for your being with us and our being with you on our next educational event.